0: It's almost impossible to believe this is the last weekend of our DNA series. It's all been about seven claims that a Christ follower can make that someone who isn't a Christ follower can't make. I've been asked the question by people who are not believers, why would I be better off if I believed what you believe? I think that's a fair question. And in fact, between you and me, sometimes when I'm talking to people of other belief systems, I'll ask them that question. If I believed what you believe, how would I be better off? It's not a... It's not an antagonistic question. It's a fair question, a good question. And we're trying to answer that question in this series. Give a defense without being defensive. We've picked all of these claims from four successive chapters in the Bible 2 Corinthians 3, 4, 5, and 6. So even after this series, I'm hoping that you'll fall in love with this section of scripture. It's only four chapters. But what makes it so special, and the reason why we get all these wonderful claims, is that Paul is describing the new way of life in Jesus Christ. And so, we've already looked at six of the claims. Week one, we started with, I am a new person. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in the Ultimate Witness Protection Program. The best this world can offer is to improve you. But according to 2 Corinthians five seventeen, any person who is in Jesus Christ is a new creation. And then week two, we said Christ followers can see around corners because when we take what God has to say about the future and we believe it by faith, then we're actually able to see more we see before. Week three, we learned that we have value that can't be seen. In fact, we're going to go back to that very scripture as we begin this message. The Bible says we have treasure in jars of clay. And then in week four, we saw we're never going to die. The Bible tells us that when this body wears out, that's not the end of us, we're gonna go on living and the best is yet to come. And then we, we saw that even though our outer person gets weaker as we age, our inner person gets stronger every day, and then last week, in a message from 2 Corinthians 5.20, we learned that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, so consequently, all of us have a purpose that matters. Today, we come to the last of the seven claims, and really, to me, it's the one that sums all the others up. But just to get us thinking before we talk about what that claim is, let me ask you, have you ever had a day so bad or so many things went wrong that after a while you found yourself saying, I just can't win? I mean, I still say that every once in a while and I have to catch myself because really what we're saying is, I thought I was making progress, but then something came out of nowhere and took it away, And it seems like no matter how I try, I just can't win. I don't know if we still use this expression or not, but when I was younger, we had an expression here in the United States. We called it Murphy's Law. The idea is if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. So have you ever had a time like that in your life where you felt like no matter how hard you tried, you just couldn't win? How does that make you go forward from that moment? If you really begin to believe that you can't win, how does it change the way you live your life? By distinction, suppose that you could invert that claim, and you could honestly say, I can't lose. No matter what happens, no matter what I get into, no matter what goes wrong, I can't lose. How would that change the way we lived our life? You know, we have something in our system, in our world system today, that's not the same, but at least it helps us think this through. We have something called insurance. And with insurance, if you're insured and you have a loss, you understand that you have a way of at least recouping part of your loss. Well, if you're insured, it changes the way you operate, doesn't it? Well, what we're going to discover is this is not a form of insurance, but it's a form of divine assurance that no matter what happens in our lives, we're, 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 we're covered, There's a beautiful verse in the book of Deuteronomy that I've loved through the years that just simply says, underneath are the everlasting arms. That means if we ever fall in life, and we will, that underneath there are God's arms to catch us if we fall. Well, life is hard, and life can be scary. That's what we're going to begin talking about next week in a series on anxiety. But it's really true. If you are a Christ follower, you can't lose. Now, very quickly, I want to say something, especially for those of you who have some background in the Christian world. I'm not talking about prosperity theology or prosperity religion. There is a a school of religion that developed largely in the 60s and 70s that had for its idea that if you did something, maybe gave money, or if you were part of a group, that you would never have any problems with health, you would never have any problems with poverty, that if you just did whatever that religion was asking you to do, you would be able to live in prosperity. I think we all know that's bogus, and that's not what this message is about, and the deeper that we get into it, the more you're going to see that that's not what this message is about. In fact, as Christ followers, even though it's true that we can't lose, we're still gonna have trouble. It's kind of a strange thing. Uh, as I was getting ready to type out the final copy of this message, before I could type a stroke on my laptop, I got blindsided by two major problems that just sort of derailed my work for an hour or so. One problem was just a long-standing issue that I keep praying will be resolved, but it just doesn't seem to get resolved and the second one was one that came out of nowhere. Our longest broadcast, which is a Kansas broadcast, it's through a network affiliate, uh, we, we discover we're going to lose that. We've, been, we've had this broadcast for 16 years, and what's happening is, The network has decided they're going to feed a news broadcast on Sunday morning, and our local affiliate has no choice but to accept it. It wasn't really a problem for us here in the Wichita area, but a lot of rural areas in Kansas are underserved. And as I travel the state, I meet a lot of people who use that broadcast for church. I mean... I I can be in Northwest Kansas or Southwest Kansas or, or Eastern Kansas, and I'm always running into people who say, we depend on that broadcast. In fact, I've heard of farmers who get together in some areas, and that's their church service early on Sunday morning. So, I mean, just as I begin to write this message, I can't lose, I wind up with two problems that I didn't expect. So, this being football season... Maybe it's this way we should say this. This idea we can't lose doesn't mean the other team doesn't score on us, nor does it mean we don't get behind. It just means that when the stadium lights go off and the clock goes to zero, we can't lose. So let's begin. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 today. Let's look at chapter 4 and the 7th verse. We have seen this verse already in week 3, but it's what sort of begins our scripture discussion today. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, the Bible says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, for many years, Christ followers have loved that expression. We have treasure in jars of clay. The jar of clay there is referring to our physical bodies, our physical personages. The treasure is what God invests in us. Now, while that expression is beautiful to us and we can draw certain things from it, for instance, we, we understand the distinction between our fragileness and God's power. We are fragile like clay pots and God is powerful. There's actually a meaning beyond that. That was part of the culture in the first century. In those days, there was no homeowner's insurance. And so if you had a valuable that a thief broke in and stole, you just lost it, and there was no way for you to recoup your loss. So consequently, homeowners had to get creative in the way they disguised their valuables so that if a thief broke into the house, a thief wouldn't know where to look for the valuable. Well, one of the things they used was clay pots. In those homes in those days, especially a well-to-do person's home, there would be various levels Of vessels. There might be fine crystal, there might be porcelain, there might be glass, but in the house there would usually be racks and racks of ugly, worthless clay pots. Oftentimes they would be in a closet off the kitchen, and nothing but junk, nothing but stuff you wouldn't even want to talk about would go in those clay pots. They were unimportant, completely, basically worthless, other than to serve a basic usage purpose. But sometimes a smart woman who had a very expensive strand of pearls would go into that kitchen closet and just right in the middle of all those clay jars just drop her pearl necklace in one of those nondescript clay jars so that if a thief broke into the house, the last place that thief is going to look is in the clay pots. He might rifle the chest of drawers, he might look under the bed, he might look in expensive uh, chests, but the thief isn't going to search the clay pot because surely nothing valuable is in that. Well, that's where the writer of scripture came along under the Holy Spirit and said, that's what we are. We have treasure in clay pots or jars of clay. You know, I think if we really grasp what the Bible is saying here, it would really help us with insecurity. Do you know why my, most Christ followers are insecure? They're comparing their clay pot to somebody else's clay pot. And and that's really how the world judges us, right? So consequently, if we're not careful, we'll get into a judging contest about whose clay pot is better than somebody else's clay pot. But why get into that? Because at the end of the day, we're all clay pots, you know? I mean, here's the thing. I hope I don't rain on anybody's parade, but if you're young and beautiful right now, life isn't gonna stay that way. I mean, if you go back to the, the beautiful people Uh, of the you know of the 40s and 50s you know back in the 20th century the movie actresses and movie actors who were on the covers of magazines they're dead they're in a grave dig them up see what they look like now we are clay pots but what makes us valuable is God puts his treasure in us And when the clay pot is holding God's treasure, the clay pot becomes valuable because of what it is holding. And that's what God is saying here. God is saying we have this treasure in jars of clay so that this all-surpassing power, think about that expression. That's not exactly where we're drawing our title, but we could draw it from there. All-surpassing power means power that can't be beat. That would lead us to I can't lose. But this all-surpassing power is from God, is not from us. Who's listening to this message here in South Auditorium or North Auditorium or online or on television? Who's listening to this message today and what you're facing is so daunting that you're really beginning to wonder if you're going to be able to face it? You're, You're wondering, do I have inside of me what I need in order to face this challenge? I really think anybody who's attempting great things will find themselves there. If you you want to do great things in life, you will be in scenarios where you will say, I just don't know if I am up to this. Well, if you're there, let me show you a couple of verses. And by the way, these are from 2 Corinthians. It's in this section. I want to show you a couple of verses that have carried me through some really challenging days. At the end of chapter 2, Paul is talking about all the stuff that he's up against, and he asks this question, who is sufficient for these things? It's just sort of like an open-ended question. You ever ask a question like that? You're not really talking to anybody in particular. You're not really looking for an answer. It's just sort of like you shrug and you look up to heaven and say, who's sufficient for all this? I found myself there many times as leader of this church in the last 35 years. Oftentimes, I would, I would be up against something that was way bigger than me, and I just would feel so inadequate, and I would go home after a difficult day, and I would ask Mary Alice, how do they talk somebody into doing this job? Well, Mary Alice, of course, is sweet, but she's not one to give out cheap sympathy, and she would always remind me, they didn't talk you into doing this job. God called you to do this job, and I would say, well, okay, I guess I'll do it another day, but that's the question I was asking. Who's sufficient for all these things? Five verses later, in chapter three, verse five, Paul said, our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient. One more time. If you and I walk out of here and we embrace what the Bible is telling us today, we will walk out of here saying, I can't lose. But we're not saying that because we discovered something in our clay jar in that pottery somehow, that has allowed us to beat the law of averages, we will walk out of here saying, I can't lose because God is in my life and God brings sufficiency and God gives me equipping that I don't have on my own. Well, with that introduction out of the way, let's jump into our scripture that's going to prove to us we can't lose. Second Corinthians chapter four and the eighth verse. This has long been a favorite of God's people we are pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Could I read that one more time? This is, I mean, what this verse says is you can't lose. We are pressed by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we don't get knocked out. Now, I want to take those four statements and I want to try to make them more modern for us so that they're in our language. And so I've tried to really understand exactly what the scriptures are saying and put them in modern terms. This is, I believe, very accurate. Number one, we get squeezed, but we're never cornered. We get perplexed, but we're never driven to despair. People give us trouble, but we are never abandoned by God. Life knocks us down, but trouble never writes the final chapter. Now, you could do something interesting if you had that on a page. Suppose that you covered up the right side of that with your hand. And what you would have is I'm squeezed, I'm perplexed, people give us trouble, life knocks us down. That's what life is like without God. On the other hand, no pun intended, you could cover up the left side of the page, and what you would get is, I'm never cornered, I'm never driven to despair, I'm never abandoned by God, trouble never writes the final chapter. That would seem to communicate that life is never a problem. That's what many people think the Christian life is. But whatever else the Bible is, it's honest. And the whole message goes like this, we're squeezed, but we're not cornered. We're perplexed, but we're never driven to despair. People give us trouble, but we're never abandoned to God. Life knocks us down, but trouble never writes the final chapter. With this brief message that we have left, I want us to just look at each of these four statements, and I want us to feel what they mean. First of all, the Bible says we are pressed on every side by troubles, or we've already seen the word squeezed. Anybody here feeling squeezed today? I mean, what what, what does that really mean? Well, I really think to be squeezed here by life means life takes away options. I have an executive pastor on my team. He is outside of my family, my closest friend. And we're about the same age. He's an extraordinary business person. And what I depend on Billy so many times is for him to analyze the situation, to bring it to me, put it in bite-sized terms so that I can make a good decision. So often when we're in these meetings, I've asked Billy through the years, tell me my range of options. Tell me what my choices are. Why do we like to have a lot of options? Because if we have a lot of options, we can make a choice in comfort. We can make a choice, we can make a choice that we feel good about. For instance, if, if someone graduates from high school this coming uh, spring and they're accepted by 10 different universities, they can make that decision with comfort. But if they depended upon a lot of universities to accept them that don't accept them, then that decision gets really difficult. Well, life has a way of taking options off the table of squeezing us. How do we, how do we preface a statement in that kind of situation? We we use an expression, don't we? We say, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, I would do this. In a perfect world, I would make this choice. If I were living in a perfect world, if my husband was a perfect husband, I would do this. If my kids were perfect kids, I would do this. If all the people at work treated me well, I would do this. But the problem is we get squeezed and we're not living in a perfect world. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. Literally, we get squeezed on every side, but we will never get to the place where there's no way out. There's a verse in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that talks about being tested in life. And the Bible says that God will never let a test be so difficult that there's no way out. One more time, the upshot of all this is this. Life takes away our options, it squeezes us, but God will make sure there's there's always a way out. You know the peculiar thing as I look back on my life? Oftentimes, the way out would actually be in the trouble I was encountering. I mean, the options would get taken away, and then there would be this trouble, but it would be through something in that trouble that God would make away. Sort of like when the Israelites came to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies behind them. The Red Sea is their problem. It's right in front of them. But what does God do? He uses their trouble to open it up and make a way for them to get through on dry ground. Our God's an awesome God. Well, let's look at the second one. The Bible says we get perplexed. There's a myth right now that I want to debunk, and that is that if you are a Christian, you will always know what to do. But I find it lovely here that the man whom God used to write more of the Bible than anybody else, Paul, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament, maybe 14 if he wrote Hebrews. I'm so glad Paul said every once in a while, I just don't know what to do. You know, The older you get in life, and I know New Spring can be very young, but the older you get in life, the more you'll discover that a lot of things you knew you don't know. I I had that experience. When I was a teenager growing up, I thought my dad made decisions so difficult. I would think, boy, it's so simple if he would just do do this or do that. Then I got in those situations myself, and I discovered there was a lot more complexity than I thought there was. I love the story of two women who were in med school together. They were going to be child psychiatrists. And they wound up meeting each other 20 years after they graduated, 20 years into their practice. And one said to the other, you know, when I graduated med school, I had six theories on raising kids. Now I have six kids and no theories. (laughs) And that's, that's how you sort of feel when you get older, you know? We get perplexed. Here's something that I find myself saying when I get in one of those situations. I'll say, this doesn't come with a book of instructions. I've done so many things in my life that I felt were helpful. I mean, one of the things that I did was I I cultivated friendships with Christian leaders who were 20 years older than myself, but who thought young and ever since i started in the ministry i started pastoring when i was 20 i've had a collection of friends who were 20 years older than myself who were very wise who stopped still thought young now it's kind of hard for me to find guys who are 20 years older than me but that's been a blessing in my life but i've been in scenarios before where i would call up those friends those leaders who were very successful tell them what i was dealing with only to have them say i don't know mark i've never been through that before What do you do when you're in a situation in life where you don't know what to do? You're, as Paul said, perplexed. It doesn't come with the book of instructions. In all my years of leadership and training leaders, I've never dealt with any situation as difficult as I dealt with six years ago, which was the dying months of my dad. My dad had dementia, and I could sort of work with him as long as that dementia was just affecting his thought processes. But with dementia, which is such a difficult disease, if any of you have loved someone who had dementia or Alzheimer's, eventually the dementia actually began to affect his autonomic nervous system. And the family had decided, my dad and mom had decided, that I was going to make all the decisions for his care during that time. Nothing has ever been as difficult for me as that time because I promise you, there was not a good decision and a bad decision. There were just bad decisions and worse decisions. And every day I would meet with the team who was giving him his care and we would rack our brains to try to figure out how to handle things. And then I would go home at night and I would rethink all my decisions and reproach myself for why I couldn't do this or why I couldn't bring this off. And after my dad passed away, maybe this was part of the grief process. I don't know. I'm just sharing my heart with you. For six months, every morning I would wake up and scroll through every decision that I made on my dad's care and ask myself, did I do the right thing? Did I do do the right thing, did I do the right thing? I'm just telling you, I mean, no matter how bright you may be, you may be a 4.0, you may be a 4.0 plus student at the university, you may have have a string of degrees, you may have a whole lot of people who think you're the smartest person in the room, great, good for you, but I'll just tell you something, sooner or later, you're going to come to a situation in life where as bright as you are, as many contacts as you have, as many friends as you have in high places, you're just going to come to a place where you're like, I don't know what to do. I love this. Paul said, we're perplexed, but we're never driven to despair. (laughs) For all of us who drive automobiles, it would be like Paul is saying, we don't know what to do, but we're never sitting on empty. Now, I want to help us understand the reality here so that we will be able to just own this and take it home with us. What Paul is not saying is, we don't know what to do, but suddenly we know everything to do. He's saying, We're perplexed, but we're never in a spot where we don't know how to take the next step. We may not know how to get to the destination, but he's saying as a Christ follower, you will always know how to take the next step. By the way, this is the reason why it's so important every week that you have the opportunity to be in a Bible teaching church where you sit under the word of God, not under a teacher who just gives you his or her own ideas, but somebody who will share with you the word of God. Because if you hear the word of God... The Word of God will get into you, and when you get into one of these situations where you're perplexed, it will be something that you heard in a message, something that you read in a Bible verse that will help you take the next step. Like I said, you may not know how to get all the way to the destination, but by the grace of God, you will never be in a place where you're sitting on empty. And oh yeah, Christ followers, you got something else very special. The Bible calls it prayer. In Jeremiah 33:3. Someone said Jeremiah 33.3 is God's phone number. It's not really true. That's too cute by half, but it's sort of interesting because God says, ring, call me up. God said, call me and I'll answer you. I'll tell you, look at this new spring, marvelous and wondrous things you could never figure out on your own. So like Paul said, you can't lose. You're going to get in situations where you won't know what to do. But if you're a Christ follower, you will always know how to take the next step. You have God's word to teach you. You've got prayer where God will reveal things to you you could never figure out on your own. Well, let's look at the third thing. Paul said we get hunted down. Literally, it means people give us trouble. You know, when I get to these Bible verses, oftentimes I'm trying to figure out how to explain it and how to apply it. I'm guessing I don't even need to explain this one. What do you think? Because I'm guessing everybody here can read that verse, people give me trouble, and you've got your own stories to plug in. Why do people give us trouble? I mean, after all, we're so nice. Do you ever think about that? You know, I I love everybody. I want everybody to be happy. Why do people give me trouble? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you ever felt that way. But do you ever wonder about that? You know, it's like, I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I don't have anything against that person. Why is that person giving me trouble? Well, there are a lot of answers to that. I mean, if you are a Christ follower, Satan hates you. And every once in a while, he's going to stir people up to cause you damage. Sometimes it's because you're successful. Someone said, if you want problems in life, just have more, know more, do more. People won't always like you. Sometimes people think you're in their way. You have something they want. And then there are times when people just presume something about you that's not true. So yeah, you're going to have situations in your life where people are going to give you trouble. It could be your spouse. It could be your mother-in-law. It could be the person who lives next door. It could be the person you work with. It could be, you know, one of your kids' friends. Just plug it in. People are going to give us trouble. But look at this. The Bible says, we are never abandoned by God. Were you ever abandoned maybe accidentally. That that happened to me one time when I was 10 years old. My sister is 12 years older than I. She was graduating from Texas Wesleyan University in Fort Worth. And this was back in 1967. It wasn't that familiar. It wasn't that common for people to graduate from college. So my entire family had come up from South Texas. They were in our house, probably 60 or 70 Hoover's. For my sister's graduation, we all went to the church where the graduation was going to be held, and it ended about 9.30, and then everybody was going back to my house for dinner. There were probably about 12 cars that our family had there, and I was riding with an aunt and an uncle. By now, it's about 9.45 at night. And my aunt that I was riding with sent me to find another aunt that couldn't be found and said, Mark, you know the campus, go find her. When I came back, everybody was gone. I am standing in an emptying parking lot and all of cars are gone. So I'm smart enough to just say, stay where you are. Don't, because when, when people come back to get you, they're going to come back to the spot where you were left. So I stood there because I thought at any moment there are going to be cars screaming into this parking lot to rescue the pride and joy of the Hoover family. <laughs> and to my amazement, maybe they were trying to tell me something, nobody came. I waited an hour by the same light pole. Now it's about 10.45 at night. And it hits me. They have forgotten me. They don't even know I'm gone. So at that moment, I start walking down Rosedale Street in Fort Worth, and I probably walked a mile, a mile and a half. Everything's closed. Finally, I get to an all-night Um, you know kind of a drive-in restaurant and the manager was nice enough to let me use the phone and can you imagine my mother at that point because the kids are all playing in the back of the house and they all assume I'm back there and now it's getting close to 11 o'clock and I call and say hey mom Uh, and she said where are you (laughs) and I told her she freaked out and just gave the phone to my dad and finally they came and got me well you know what (laughs) That was a rough time, but I I knew that somebody accidentally forgot me. But it's not funny when it's on purpose, is it? Some of you know what it's like to be abandoned by the person you thought was your best friend. Some of you know what it's like to be abandoned by by a person you stood at a marriage altar with, and you thought, this person's gonna love me the rest of his life. But he came home one day, Or you came home and you found a note where he just said, I don't want to be with you anymore. Well, that's what it's like to be abandoned on purpose. And yet the Bible tells us here that even if people give us trouble, we will never be abandoned by God. Maybe this is the best way of saying this. What it means is even if people give us trouble, they never have our destiny in their hands. Your destiny is not in your mother-in-law's hands. Your destiny is not in your ex-husband's hands. Your destiny is not in the person who hates you at work's hands. Your destiny is never in anybody else's hands. People may give you trouble, but God will never abandon you. This is an important one for the times that we're living in. There is a story in the Bible about political correctness and it really speaks to our times. We covered this last summer in the Clash of Dynasty series in the book of Daniel. The Israelites, or the people from Judea, had been carried away captive into Babylon, and Babylon had its own political correctness. And the king decided that what he wanted to do was to stand up a statue 90 feet tall. He wanted to get everybody thinking in lockstep. And so he said, here is the way this is gonna go down. The band's going to play some hot music. we got a great band here. And so when the band starts playing the hot music, everybody bowed down to the statue. And everybody said, well, okay, I guess you got to go along to get along. Except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were were Jewish people who believed in God. They said, King, we can't do that thing. We, We only worship God. We can't bow down. And the king said, well, maybe you boys are a little slow. Y'all come from sort of a backward kind of place. You still understand in Babylon, everybody's got to think this way. Because if you don't think this way, you're kind of a hater. And you've got some kind of phobe to go on the end of your word. Isn't it strange how those words get made up? They're not even real words. And so the king said, well, when the music starts playing, boys, we're going to play it one more time. We'll give you one more chance, and when you start hearing the band play, you better bow down, because if you don't bow down, we're going to put you in a furnace of fire. I would have loved to have watched this next moment. I hope God kept it on video, because one of those three guys said, King, you can have your band play all night. We just want you to understand we're not going to bow down to your statue, and we're not even worried about answering you. Because our God, whom we serve, will help us out. And if he doesn't, king, we just want you to understand we're still not going to bow down. You can play your music all night, but we're going to stand straight. It got the king real upset, and he put them in the furnace. Oh, there was somebody who gave them trouble. They put them in the furnace after the king had had it heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. Killed some of the guys who actually were tending the furnace. Do you remember what happened next in the Bible? This is in Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed in the fire furnace, but the Bible said they were walking around. Now, from what I can tell, I think they had a little personality. I think they might have been walking around, rubbing their hands and feeling the blaze. You know, Mm, boy, doesn't that feel good? It's nice and warm in here. But that wasn't what got the king upset. The king said, didn't we put three guys in the furnace I see four, and that fourth one is really different. You feeling what I'm feeling here? In this age that you and I live in, if you're a Christ follower, if you stand with Christ... People are going to give you trouble, but don't worry about that because God said they may give you trouble, but I am never going to leave you on the side of the road with an orange sticker attached to your car. You're never going to be abandoned. That is so powerful today. It is why we should never get squeamish about standing with God if we're God's people. If anybody's giving you trouble and give you homework today. There's a psalm I want you to just fall in love with. Anybody who's really dealing with a difficult situation with someone giving you trouble, go home when you get home and open up Psalm 56. Because David's talking about this. He said, oh God, people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. They're always, anybody feel this? They're always twisting what I say. They spend their days plotting. But later in the chapter, he said, when I send my cry up to you, my haters will be turned back. I'm certain of this. God is with me. Or a better translation has it this way. This I know. Four words. God is for me. It doesn't matter who's against you if God is for you. When you have to walk into that fiery furnace, some of you are going to walk into it tomorrow at work because you have a supervisor who just hate you, you're going to walk into that and your stomach's going to be all churning and tied up in knots, but you can always remember, God is for me. My boss may not like me, but God is for me. The person in my family may not like me, but God is for me. My ex hates my guts, but God is for me. Isn't that wonderful to know you can't lose? Finally, and I'm through. The fourth one, we get knocked down. Well, put yourself in my place for a moment. It's you getting ready for this message. You, you got the scripture. You know what I'm, I'm, I'm asked to preach. And you get these four statements. We're pressed. We're perplexed. People give us trouble. And now we get knocked down. And, you, and it's your job now to explain it to the audience. Work with me what would you see if you're in my place on this last one? You can tell this one has to be worse than the other three. Whatever getting knocked down means, it's got to be worse than being squeezed. It's got to be worse than not knowing what to do. It's got to be worse than people giving us trouble. Those first three punches kind of stagger us a little bit, kind of rock us back. But now the Bible says we get knocked down. What does that mean? As near as I can understand it, it means you get hit so hard by something in life that your life is never going to be the same again. It's true, isn't it? A lot of bad stuff that happens to us, there's there's an answer for it. You lose a job, you get another job. You lose a relationship, God brings somebody else into your life. You get sick, but then you get well. I mean, there's just a whole lot of things in life that we get hit, but kind of staggered us for a moment, but we get back up and we go on with life and we sort of let it go. For all of us who follow Jesus in our clay pots, someday we're going to get hit so hard by something, we're going to say, life can't ever be right again. Whatever happens, it completely redefines your life in a bad way. I think about my mom and dad here. My dad pastored a church in Texas, the same church, for 50 years. And then for 13 years, he was our care pastor at New Spring. My dad started pastoring when he was 25. He just came from sort of the country in South Texas and not long after he gave his life into the ministry, he came to Fort Worth for training in a seminary. And I mean, not just, just a few months after he started seminary, this little church in the inner city of Fort Worth called him to be their pastor at the age of 25. Those first few years at that church were difficult years because, well, Sometimes small churches just can just have difficult internal politics. But when my mom and dad were 29, that punch came that can change your life and it'll never be the same again. My parents had two kids. They had a girl, my older sister, and they had my brother, Roger. And when my parents were 29, my brother, Roger, was around four years of age and he got brain cancer. And he died in a matter of months. That was before I was born. But through the years, I've talked to my mom and dad many times about what it was like to encounter that because since I too have been a pastor and know the challenges, I just cannot imagine how someone could carry all the burden of ministry and deal with losing a four-year-old child to brain cancer at the same time. I've always wondered how they kept going. Six years ago, when my dad was dying, in fact, he was only a couple of months away from his own death, my dad decided he wanted to be buried in a different place than he and my mom had been planning originally. My parents are all from a little town, both from a little town in in the hill country of Texas called Burnett, Texas. It's just a little west of Austin. And... My mom and dad had originally planned to be married in my maternal grandparents' cemetery, a little cemetery in Bertram, Texas, called Mount Zion. But my dad decided right before he died he wanted to be buried in a little community called Hoover's Valley. My great uncles, Jacob and Isaac Hoover, settled there in the 1800s. They were circuit-riding Methodist preachers. And there is a family cemetery there that I have a lot of family buried in called Hoover's Valley Cemetery. And a couple of months before he died, my dad said, I want to be buried in Hoover's Valley. Well, I talked to my mom and dad about this because I had a sensitive issue on my hands. My brother is buried in Bertram. And I asked them, do you want me to have Roger's grave moved? And my parents said, yes, we do. So I went to work on that. I have family down there, and my family has business connections there, and we worked it out so that my brother's grave could be moved to Hoover's Valley. And we decided, as a family, we would actually have a service at the little chapel in the Hoover's Valley Cemetery. So on the night, the evening that we were gonna have that service, There were probably 60 or so members of the Hoover family that gathered down there in that little chapel. And we did what we always do. All Hoovers are musical, so we sang songs for a while. And then I had perhaps one of the most unusual experiences of my life. I stood up to preach a funeral sermon for my brother, whom I never got to know, who died 60 years before that moment. But I preached the hope that we have in Jesus. And then as a family, we all traipsed out of that little chapel and walked around Roger's grave and we held hands and we sang again. And as we sang, I looked down at my brother's tombstone that I had seen so many times. It just was a little tombstone that said, Roger W. Hoover, his date of birth and his date of death. And right below that was the title of a song that my parents had chosen to put on his tombstone that just simply said, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And I thought, that is how they went on. They knew that life was never going to be the same again. And so they had to take that and trust Jesus to carry it so that they could keep going. Do you know what happens to us when something hits us so hard that it's never gonna be the same again, but we don't give it to Christ to carry? It's like having some broken glass, I mean, a beautiful piece of glasswork that broke, and instead of trusting it to some other place, we put it in a shoebox and keep it in our closet. And every once in a while, we go back and we take it down from the shelf and we hold those pieces in our hands, and it cuts us again and again and again, and we keep bleeding. But when life hits us so hard that it's never going to be the same again, we just have to say, God, I don't know what to do. I'm trusting you with this situation. Just so that you will know that I'm not pulling this out of thin air. The same apostle Paul who wrote these words would later write just a few days probably before his execution these words. He said, I'm suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it. For I know the one in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until the day of his return. That is what my mom and dad were saying when they inscribed safe in the arms of Jesus on Roger's gravestone. They were saying, our life is never gonna be the same again, but we are trusting Roger to the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know him and we're content and confident that he is able to hold what we have trusted him with until the day that Jesus comes back. You can't lose. God bless. Thanks very much.